Hey, everybody. Welcome to the infrequent, the apologetically infrequent full cast and crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. Joining me today again on the pod is my good friend and colleague, Ted Jessup, who you may remember from our excellent, if I do say so myself, deep dive into Rosemary's Baby, which was a movie perfect for Ted. And we're doing a movie today that is also perfect for Ted. And I say perfect for Ted because... Ted is one of those guys who just simply knows everything, knows arcane pockets of information, knows a tremendous amount of history, knows a tremendous amount of entertainment, showbiz, film, and television history. In short, he's a comedy writer. Ted has been a writer for Family Guy, for Comedy Central, for Late Show with Craig Kilborn. Uh, We work together on World's Dumbest and several other things for my production company, Meeting House Productions. And Ted is just, as you can hear from my previous interview with him, he's just a great guy to talk entertainment with. And we talked about the John Voight vehicle, The Odessa File, which is a excellent Panavision film from the 1970s, which explores post-Nazi Germany and typical of its time, a cabal of living Nazis who are collaborating to once again emerge as a global power. John Voigt plays this sort of world-weary, moral-free reporter coasting through life, covering suicides and car crashes, who stumbles uh, into a Nazi conspiracy. And it's, uh, it's just one of those great 70s films that is always on and always around. You can catch it on Amazon Prime if you're interested before or after listening to this podcast. So I'm joined by my friend Ted, and I look forward to presenting The Odessa File. I want to talk about this era of this movie is amazing because, you know, it's such a cliche for two old guys to be like, oh, they don't make movies like this anymore. But, you know, they really don't. And at the time this movie came out, I guess we're still in this vogue at the time of World War II. We're like, what, you know, 25, 30 years after World War II concludes. So that's kind of still fresh in the memory of filmmakers and writers, and we're still sort of processing what it all meant, I guess. So you have these types of stories that aren't just doing war movies, but they're doing sort of aftermath war movies. We're into the cover-up now. We're into the the master plan of Nazism that still lingers on long after right. the war. So it's feeding into a couple of sort of... Um uh threads that are happening in the culture and one is the idea of the conspiracy theory that people are fascinated and everybody always loves nazis but the idea that they're part of a sort of cabal of secret um you know they're still industrialists and they're hiding each other Mm -hmm. and then they up the ante even further by making them still up to mischief like they're trying to send bubonic plague into israel <laughs> in 10 places it's not enough to just catch them because they were terrible but they have to be up to something uh even worse than before yeah but yeah and then it's, it's also investigative journalism you know this is the time of watergate mm-hmm. so you watch peter miller john Boyd's character go from somebody who's sort of um you know, a kind of loosey-goosey, feckless, uh, you know, I'm a freelance, I like to be free, I don't care, I don't want to be pinned down, and he's married to a stripper, and he gets a conscience, you know, he reads this diary, and becomes moved, and suddenly is a guy with a mission, like he never has been before, you know, mm-hmm. 
And it increases as he's opposed, you know, first at his paper, then by the cop friend who gave him the diary. And then he comes up against, you know, the sort of uh, phalanx of different kind of Odessa obstacles. And, um, you know, even his editor, you know, you pointed out that sort of super modernist office he's in, um, you know, and he says, nobody cares. Everybody wants to forget. Mm-hmm. Um, his mother says the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. people don't know what it was like. Everyone wants to forget. Um, and at one point his editor just says, it's a sick world, Peter. What yes. can I say? Um, and he can't believe the apathy of everybody. Um, and his mother, of course, is Maria Schell, the great European actress, who's Maximilian Schell, Rushman's sister. Yeah. Um, and they escaped, uh, from, uh, Vienna in 38 to get out there from a sort of entertainment dynasty. Hmm. And he was, of course, the great uh, Rushman is played by Maximilian Schell, who was in Judgment at Nuremberg mm-hmm. and hundreds of things and was ridiculously handsome. They give him a great sort of matted, disgusting sort of Weinsteinian, mm-hmm. like fake bald patch. Uh, yes. But he's actually a very dashing guy. And it's a movie that doesn't pull any punches. I was kind of shocked for a movie of its time, like the concentration camp scenes in black and white, which really, you know, now you think of uh, Spielberg's Holocaust movie. That's what they really look exactly like. That They totally prefigure that. They yeah. totally prefigure that. And I think that's the first time that was done so realistically. You know, a couple of years before you have anachronistic World War II movies, mm-hmm. like Great Escape and stuff, where mm-hmm. Steve McQueen's wearing like a sweatshirt and jeans and <laughs> looks like a 60s guy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Kelly's Heroes, where Donald mm-hmm. Sutherland kind of has long hair and it's all about mm-hmm. kind of getting the gold from the man. It's not yeah. even like... So this is hyper-realistic. Um, you know, Ronald Neem, who's, uh, you know, did... Uh, Prime of Miss Jean Brody and and Poseidon Adventure, you know, it was just a great action and then great drama director from a huge sort of dynastic family. His grandson, Gareth, named as Downton Abbey, you know, and his, fa- his father and mother were society photographers and silent actors and stuff. So he was steeped in this stuff from the 40s and 30s. And he... You know, accurately mimics, you know, black and white stills from liberation stuff. And uh, those little snapshots are great. They're totally realistic. They're not hokey at all. And I'm sure Spielberg looked looked at them before he sort of did it better. I I thought Neem did an amazing job directing this movie. I thought the cinematography was just mind-blowing. I really loved – I texted you before. I was like, Panavision, that's the kind of rabbit hole I can go down. Like I recently went down a rabbit hole of like Japanese widescreen noir crime films. And there's something about this Panavision look and these lenses and just the the set decoration that, God, it's such an amazing format. I guess The Hateful Eight was the most recent film that's still shot in that format, I read. Right. But I love the colors. The the colors are amazing. Information that's included on the screen. Yeah, the width and breadth and, uh, you know, does something to the contours that's Mm -hmm. very fantastical but realistic. It's, It's great. Yeah. Now, when you watch a movie like this, what's the Ted Jessup default watch preset? Do you like, are you watching it and ready to be moved and transported? Or do you always have a little bit of an eye on what's funny and what, because it's not a comedy. So when I'm saying 
I'm watching it with your voice in my head when I watch it the second time. I don't mean to imply that it's a movie that you should make fun of at all. It's it's a very powerful and really well done movie that is taught and has incredible locations, like you mentioned, and and really wonderful acting all the way throughout it. But I'm curious when I watch it, I do also have an eye for that type of exposition dialogue where somebody is explaining something in just an obvious piece of writing. Do you watch movies and always kind of have that sense out? Yeah. I mean, after I've seen a movie two times or something, if I like it, then I'm in a mode of what I'd call close watching or, <laughs> or um, you're noting deep, it. deep watching mm-hmm. where I'm looking at things outside the main activity in the frame. Um, I'm looking at extras and I'm mm-hmm. looking at, um, and not for flaws because in every movie, even a terrible one, mm-hmm. I don't believe in watching unless you agree to go along for the ride. I think right. to simply shit on a movie from beginning to end just isn't fun. So I, I make the buy um, each time, but usually watch a different part of the screen. You know, and that's where you notice all the subtleties, you know, the sort of disgusting, greasy, obese landlord in this. Oh my God. Who, you know, takes a bribe in order to give a poor dead Jewish mm-hmm. Holocaust survivor's final things to a mm-hmm. journalist. So it's possible, it's possible, <laughs> I could. <laughs> Are there any of his things that I could see? It's possible. <laughs> who um, gave John Who gave John Voight a hard time about that accent? That accent's really well done. You know, I read I went one bit of preparation I did is I went back and I read five or six movie reviews, which were I just sort of mean, you mm. know, said the movie was mechanical and sort of you know, I think the movie's great rippingly suspenseful, totally mm-hmm. realistic, an amazing cast. Mm-hmm. And yeah, never stops moving. And um, I thought his accent was totally subtle and great. And same with Mary Tams, you know, mm-hmm. when he's saying, do you know what you could get for a copy of that picture of the Kennedy assassination? You know what you could get for the photograph of the man firing those shots with syndication rights, maybe two million marks. And his girlfriend is like, what a strange thing to say at a time like this. <laughs> You're a very sick person. What a thing to say at this moment. You're a very scary person. And you realize he is kind of a parasite then. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning. That's the starting line for his, mm-hmm. his transformation. And those things are going on the entire time. The Odessa people are, are changing too. They're getting yeah. madder and madder and more intent on killing Peter Miller. But also like, I I like in a way that the Nazis are not portrayed as just these insane sort of one dimensional, not that Nazis need more than one dimension to, <laughs> you know, treading on dangerous ground here. But what I mean is I like that this they're sort of portrayed as, as real people and thus become even more, you know, the banality of evil thing. It's like, yeah, they're more sinister because of their seamless reintegration into yeah. German society. You right. know, they and they're older. You know, they're mm-hmm. all eighteen years older, so they just look like everyone's parents. They just <laughs> right. look sort of benign, and they have kind of different kinds of Bavarian mustaches and beards <laughs> and slick back hair. I mean, only a couple of them. That guy George Marischka, who's who plays the sort of um, he's got daughters that are great German actresses, but mm-hmm. he plays the office of he's the first red flag that Peter Miller is going to be a pain in their ass. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he's at an office of, of wartime of, investigation. Oh, the war crimes. Right. Yeah, great office. Right, and they don't do anything, but he comes out when a woman is... What's this all about? What, what's this about? Come into my <laughs> office. Edward Rushman is dead. But he's the first person who yeah. just looks like a kind of completely um, sinister, evil person. A lot of them, like the guy who stops him in that hotel... Yes. Um, who says, you know, I'm here, Dr. Schmidt. I wanted to save you some trouble. I hear you're very tenacious. Herr Miller? Yeah? Herr Peter Miller? Yes. I wonder if we could talk somewhere. Your room, perhaps? We can talk here. Of course. My name is Schmidt. Dr. Schmidt. What do you want? Perhaps we can sit down. Very pleasant hotel, this. A little too solid for me. What is it that you want? You are a journalist, I'm told, with a reputation for being very thorough, very tenacious. <laughs> right. Tenacious and dogged. Well, let me save you some trouble. That's a great um, scene for Voigt. He he gets very angry and he doesn't like being handled and he, and he doesn't like, he almost doesn't like the clumsiness of the fakery with which he's being, you know, right. with which they're trying he to stall him. Intelligent. Some friends of mine heard you're making an inquiry into events uh, that happened a long time ago. Hmm? You mean Edward Rushman, don't you? I do. I most certainly do. Edward Rushman. So? Edward Rushman is dead. I didn't know that. Of course not. There's no reason why you should. But I thought I'd mention the fact to you. Because I didn't want you wasting your time. Tell me something, Dr. Schmidt. When exactly did he die? In May 1945, fighting the American advance. I'm sorry, you'll have to try harder. Rashman was captured by the British in December 1947. Didn't your friends brief you properly when they gave you this errand? Drop this inquiry. Rushman was seen alive in Hamburg this year. It was never confirmed. You just confirmed it. Good day, Herr Dr. Schmidt. Yes. You just confirmed it. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, and then he's kidnapped by uh, the Mossad soon after that and brought to a beautiful kind of mountaintop cabin. Of course. Um, I, there are a couple things. Like, you know, the whole thing takes place in the space of like two and a half weeks. True. So I think burning off his kind of uh, regimental tattoo would have been just something, the only thing he could think about for the rest of the movie. Wow, ah, ah. gee, that's still tender. I, you know, I'd ask you to do a fake ID, but my God, can you look at this? Um, well, well, don't they set up that he had it done while he was in the hospital? Don't they sort of address that? Didn't well, they? He just says to that guy who the very sinister guy is kind of vetting him, kind of, what was the uniform at Flossmore? Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> great tunic, great trousers. What was the only thing you could see? The sky? Don't be stupid. Oh, the ruins on the mountaintop. There's also a great phone. I love a movie that has great phone call scenes because I love actors that are forced to act on the telephone. So like when, to your point about Siggy, John Voight finds his... Peter Miller finds his heart and he finds his reason, you know, at a very crucial moment in the film. And of course, Hollywood being, you know, controlled and written by men at the time, a cynic might say that his ultimate downfall happens because he calls his girlfriend and then 
he's overheard at the train station. And then they call the, the guy who was vetting him, who has to sort of perk up and then put two and two together on a one-sided phone call shot. Right. And, uh, there's, yeah, so there's an incredible number of phone calls. There's so there's, many. Um, that's how you do exposition. Uh, where exposition comes out. There's, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the phone call from the train station. There's yeah. the phone where call are you? where the first phone call that he overhears hears the sort of yearly anniversary of uh, Battalion Sick oh, Wouldn't miss oh, it. Of course, I wouldn't miss it for the world. I'll pick you up at seven <laughs> at this thing, which is conveniently flipped around <laughs> with the address. Oh, put him through. Hagenarai, what a nice surprise. <laughs> And it's good to hear you, sir. Of course I'm coming. I've got the invitation right in front of me. The one evening in the year I wouldn't miss. <laughs> no. I'll pick you up, sir. How about that? 7 p.m. so we can go together. Fine. Fine. It's like when... Um, who's the guy playing... Um, the guy who does the brilliant job uh, playing the Nazi hunter, whose name is escaping me right now. So like Simon almost, Wiesenthal. Simon Wiesenthal. Like when he hands Peter Miller the file, the file comes out of his desk drawer, but it's already oriented towards Peter Miller's point of view. Like, <laughs> right, in, in exactly. Perfect, perfect movie dub. What is your interest in Roshman? <laughs> Beautifully I, arrayed. Like I happen to have a file just here. So I want to talk about John Voight. I, you know, once we did... Um, when we did Rosemary's Baby, which was a great episode of the podcast, and I recommend anybody check that out because great film, great discussion uh, with Ted about that movie. But, you know, of course, I got some criticism from people who said, how can you do a whole episode about, you know, Rosemary's Baby and not address, you know, the Polanski allegations and get into the politics of the person and all this stuff. And that's, you know, it's a fair criticism, which I which I understand. But with John Voight too, I'm sure it's going to come up because while you and I are probably of the mind that we can talk about John Voight in this particular era of John Voight's career, we don't have to get into how sort of nutty pro-Trump current John Voight is. But John Voight as a movie star in this era, he's one of those guys, like what was it in the 70s where you could have a guy like John Voight sort of physically just become one of the biggest movie stars in the world for a time? Because he's sort of not what you would think of He's not a Redford. He's not a Paul Newman. He's not Steve McQueen. He's, he's no, he's Dustin one of the few blonde stars, but he was more in the late, you know, later vein than Redford, where he mm -hmm. wasn't a beautiful surfer. He was more like Dustin Hoffman, a regular looking kind of character guy who mm -hmm. emerged to become a star because he picked great movies mm -hmm. and was just great. He's very arresting on screen and, and magnetic. You know, and he'd done all these left wing, you know, he'd done all these sort of, you know, Conrack and Deliverance. Indictments of society, which, right? Like, Right. Coming home, you know, things mm -hmm. that were sort of liberal. And yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't know what your critics want us to say, except, <laughs> yes, it's dismaying. They, they, well, he, they'd like us not to do any politically closer that, to the Odessa. They'd like us life. not to do anything related to anyone who's problematic, which is going to be which which eliminates most of Hollywood, because let's not forget, we're talking about actors here, people. So if you're looking for like intelligence and people are going to make great life decisions, you're probably barking up the wrong tree to begin with. But but Voight is more than he's such you said arresting screen presence, which is so true. I always find him. I'm so surprised again when I look at roles of his at this time, 
how emotional he is, how he's he's so present. He's so like vulnerable on screen in a way. And because he's not like movie star handsome, even though he's a good looking man, but he's such an interesting kind of doppelganger to have on the screen as someone we're going to follow through these moments. Like you talk about in pop culture and these these iconic films that he was in really define their eras in so many ways. So I guess it is ironic, but not uncommon for someone to go through that kind of liberal to conservative growth period. But at this time, when he was sort of at the peak of his power, he is such a such a commanding screen presence. And for someone who's Absolutely. in every... Absolutely, but also has an innocence, like an yeah. open-faced, yeah. Uh, you know, it looks very childlike in his first, like, eight movies. It's true. He looks um, uh, just very innocent and, um, yeah, has that sort of ger Germanic, innocent, smooth-skinned kind of thing. But, um, yeah, he's just great in this. He's great. Um, he changes over the course of the thing, and he becomes tough, and then when the whole sort of reveal of the, mm. you know, that it's his father. Um, yeah. That's been part of the thing is just the, the sort of triple whammy where he's personally vested. Um, Which really works, by the way, for sort of a kind of pseudo cheesy turn at the end. I didn't see coming because I, I didn't, I'd never seen the movie before until I watched it the first time. And um, I, that worked. I thought that totally worked. Yeah. Absolutely. And then you flash back and you see that, you know, how Roshman murdered him and mm -hmm. um, and then Roshman's house. Amazing. He's oh doing God. incredibly well as the head of a tech <laughs> company. Um, it's always it's always the tech guys. Even in, <laughs> even even back then, that scene where he first lays eyes on Roshman is so chilling and well done at the uh, the technology fair of the future that they're attending. Right, right. And then you see the other henchmen that you've seen throughout the whole thing hovering around him and saying, yes. kind of, can you do the guy, the guy you group? resemble right now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, they just they do the whole shot. They do the whole scene where the henchman is the kind of whispering to Rauschman who's in a very public thing and is like a guest of honor at this technology conference. And um, I, I, I just thought that's such an interesting choice not to have like there's no confrontation scene between between Voigt and Rauschman at that time. It's just, it really effectively conveys the horror of seeing someone up close that you know has committed the atrocities that right. Peter Miller it's more knows. like mimicking how Solomon Tauber sees him first. At right. a distance, like, needs to be like, oh my God, is that really him? Jesus, yeah. he's friends at the opera. And so, uh, are you a fan of the um, the fight scene with the assassin in the Love printing press? Uh, amazing fight scene. Great Great fight scene, inventively staged. I loved that whole set. I loved how they used that set. I loved how they used the outside of the set and the inside. I thought that was just a brilliant, brilliant piece of staging. And again, the Panavision just allows you to see everything that's going on. I thought it was brilliant. I loved it. And another couple of phone calls. There are phone calls <laughs> to coordinate rounding him up. There's a phone call from Derek Jacoby to the inn that's that right. he's at. Yeah. I just wanted to tell you, I could get the photographer now. <laughs> he's coming right now. It's, it's, he's leaving tomorrow. And they're great old phones, too. They are. Uh, I love bake, those old Bakelite phones. Amazing. And giant, just like, yeah, and like you know, you see how slightly different in everything Germany is. You know, a, a 1963 Hamburg telephone is then. Do you think that is the German culture? Like, I've never been to Germany. It, it, 
Am I getting an accurate representation? It's basically like chubby, red-cheeked, beer-drinking, singing men. If you go to the Jahr Stefan Siegfried, <laughs> that's what it is. Munich has more sort of beer halls and uh, beer drinking. Berlin mm -hmm. is very cosmopolitan and hip and mm -hmm. they're chic people everywhere. There are efforts made by subsequent generations to atone, you know, to a greater extent than Americans recognize Hiroshima sure. or yeah. all racism or um, <laughs> unlike the Germans. But I mean, it is interesting. An analogy is, is, you know, the Nazism and the desire in 1963 to forget about the war and turn mm -hmm. towards prosperity is like institutional racism. I mean, everybody's telling him like, oh God, it's yeah. horrible, but come on, let's move on, Peter. Nobody yeah. wants to think about this. It's true. Yeah, you talked about the song, um, that Perry Como song. Oh my God. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, yeah, he wrote it for the movie. So I think it's intentionally meant to juxtapose cheerful Christmas and lying and dying and <laughs> crying and flying. Watch me now, here I go, all I need's a little snow. Starts me off, sets the theme, helps me dream my Christmas dream. Every year I dream it, hoping things will change. And into the crying, the shouting, the dying. And I hope you will dream it too. It's Christmas, remember, we've got to remember. So light the light, I'm home tonight. I need you to warm me, to calm me, to love me. The whole world needs a Christmas tree. We need it to warm us, to calm us, to Such a um, weird choice, like... I, I don't think of the movie as like, it's not new Hollywood, right? But we're in that kind of era, but it's still, I guess, a little bit of that old nerdy kind of Hollywood where you would have a Perry Como soundtrack song, right? But I think they wanted that to be intentionally syrupy um, to disguise, you know, mm. the, you know, it basically leads up to Kennedy assassination Mm -hmm. And then the plot point that's going to roll everything forward, which is the death yeah. of Solomon Tauber. So I, I think to have something saccharine and sweet and not mm -hmm. rock and roll. So you do uh, think it's a counterculture choice in its own way? Absolutely. It's meant to root it in a kind of pre-rock and roll past that's post-World War II rather than pre-rock and roll. And that's the world that everybody's the acreage everybody's circling. The war wants to be forgotten, but it's very apparent. And all the people that committed atrocities are just sort of, you know, bearded like cute burgermeisters and walking around and are just middle-aged. They're not even ancient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even the youth culture, other than Peter Miller, is sort of, there's so little of it depicted. But I guess from Siggy's kind of dancing career, you can just see that sort of like a hedonistic post post-war time like we want to just forget about this stuff and just have fun or make money and you know why are you why do you care about digging this stuff up um, yeah he's a man alone yeah he's totally on a crusade by himself and has to become sort of energized and politicized mm -hmm. through reading it and then being thwarted and realizing there's something there 
But yeah, it's definitely meant to be old world. I mean, it's a year and a half or something after the Beatles are in Hamburg. So they're still playing Perry Como. And um, also just choosing Hamburg itself is sort of a non-cosmopolitan Germany to set yourself in. Right. Yeah. To have it be the seat of where the kind of Odessa <laughs> action is happening. But maybe that's intentional, too. Do you think the Germans are like I, I thought the beer hall scene is sort of like, yeah, you know, in America, like guys get drunk and like fight. But maybe the Germans had figured out long, long ago that if you just have some singing, that's something that everyone can collectively engage in while drunk. That's a more productive use of drunkenness, perhaps. Maybe. I think it's part of sort of military mind control and part of like what kept them all together and is mm -hmm. meant to be a sort of slightly creepy Nazi thing that they're singing, you know, another juxtaposition of jolly beer hall Oktoberfest right. songs that are masking the fact that they're all butchers. And the drums beat and the bands play and our flags wave again. And our whole nation will be united once more. Then we'll march together to the ends of the earth. One people, one Germany, one leader. And also, like, um, the song that they're singing is, has that sort of forced laughter verse, your chorus. You know, it's like, ha, 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 ha. Which, which nubi, 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 ni, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it's so chillingly menacing. It's like, as they're slicing off your ear, they're singing sort of a ha, 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 lifting nubi, their beer steins. Nubi, nubi, ni, ha, ha, ha. But that's yeah, such a and that's, uh, they're sort of singing that when scary bouncers kind of, you know, throw him out of the place and uh, beat the shit out of him and smash his camera. But that's just one of those scenes that's so brilliantly staged in this Panavision kind of widescreen format because you have so many extras that are so perfectly cast. Everywhere you look there, there's information to be gleaned by who these guys are. Even even the hundredth guy in the back right in that scene where you somehow have John Voigt kind of standing out perfectly staged with his, you know, and then he raises his camera to take a photograph. And that's what what sets off much of the action that happens to him subsequent to that. But and he's so much younger than anybody else. It's kind of yes. like why they aren't saying, what are you doing here? You're 25. Uh, even the makeup thing, the sort of Mission Impossible makeup thing they do for him isn't hokey. It's no. kind of like you're amazed. So he does kind of look real, uh, like a 45-year-old suddenly. Yeah. Actually, I didn't even think about that, how implausible I guess that theoretically is that he stands in front of that guy and is supposed to be 45 years old. <laughs> Yeah, right. He's questioning him extremely closely and scrutinizing him, and does this baby face, his, un his unlined baby face. Probably, what was John Voight this time? Probably, you think he was even thirty-two? Probably not. Maybe, maybe. Um, what year was uh, um, 
What year 73, was I guess they shot it. So what year was Midnight Cowboy? 69? Yeah. 68 or 69. 68, 69. So yeah, he's probably in his probably in his mid late 20s, if anything. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It was an interesting thing to take on. He does it great throughout the entire thing. This Action. is also a- it's also a so time when, when like a movie could be made out of like a Frederick Forsyth novel that was probably such a big deal at the time, right? Yeah, probably a huge seller, and that was reviewed and people anticipated. And yeah, people just had an appetite for that kind of intrigue and adventure. And um, you have all these movies like Eye of the Needle and this movie, all these kind of 70s, early 70s. Uh, World War II Nazi kind of either um, Nazi brain trust thriving in obscurity in South America, like, you know, uh, boys from Brazil. Uh, which, such- which that actor, um, uh, Gunter Meisner is in also. Gunter Meisner, yes. <laughs> He's Slug probably work. in every, every one of those movies. He's probably in. I think this is before, this is when people are just finding out that the CIA brought uh, German rocket scientists to this Mm. country to work on the atom bomb Mm -hmm. and that the Argentines and, you know, that a fascist network during the war and after had been utilizing Mm. a Nazi brain trust and then helping them escape you know, to continue to use them or out of a weird fascistic loyalty. So people are starting to learn about this kind of stuff. So it's intriguing to everybody, the idea of conspiracies. And of course, as I said, like Watergate, this is when investigative journalists were kind of heroes Mm -hmm. instead of people that just kind of annoyed us or were ineffectual. And this Um, kind of concept that, you know, even in America, our government could lie to us and be up to nefarious doings that we're unaware of. Yes, that was a novel idea. So, and even that hadn't all come out. So the idea that a conspiracy with um, tentacles that reached into the government where they were actually doing things um, secretly and uh, extra legally was just like mind blowing and terrifying as opposed to something like that you fully expect now. What are the other, um, I've never seen Coming Home, which is a crime, I know. I just, I've never been in the mood to sob uncontrollably, which is what I think is going to happen if I watch that film. But that's the one he won the Academy Award for, right? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's Jane Fonda at her best and most beautiful. And it's him at the peak of his powers. It's Bruce Dern at his best. Mm. Um, and um, God, her it's side a Hal Ashby movie, right? Yes, it's got an amazing, amazing score. You know, everything from Tim Buckley to Rolling Stones, mm. obscure songs. Um, and it's just beautiful. It's an anti-war movie without any kind of action scenes in Vietnam. Uh, it's fantastic. It's definitely one of my top 10. Yeah, I got to watch um, it. I got to watch it. I, I could go down a Voight, kind of 70s Voight rabbit hole easily. because there's so And Conrack is amazing. Where I've never seen that. Yeah, that's he's a teacher on a kind of um, uh, South Carolina island to mm-hmm. um, sort of isolated uh, African-American children who okay. are illiterate. And he, te- com- he becomes the first teacher um, to really challenge them and teach them and respect them. And then a bunch mm. u- ultimately 
Hume Cronin, who plays a sort of racist school superintendent, considers him too radical and fires him. But he's changed all their lives. And it's got Madge Sinclair, you might know from being the queen in uh, Coming to America. Oh, right. Um, but a famous distinguished actress and lots of other uh, little people here. It, sound, it sounds a great. little it sounds a little white savory. Um, well, I think he... it's actually Pat Conroy's real experience. <laughs> oh, is it a Pat Conroy novel? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Wow. So like uh, Great Santini or Prince of Tides, sure. a good yarn. A good yarn. A, a yarn well told, old Pat. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I mean, he's thwarted. So it's not like he comes in and makes them all right. uh, news anchors and stockbrokers and movie stars. I mean, he's I'm got also, leave. I'm here for the uh, sort of like, I guess, early 90s kind of uh, revitalization of Voight, particularly in Heat, which is, of course, you know, as a white guy of 51 years of age is one of my favorite films of all time. He's got such an amazing role, small role in Heat, but very pivotal, important role as the guy who's the sort of mastermind that puts De Niro together with the various scams that are going to right. uh, to, to, to drive the plot forward. Um He's but great in everything. He's great in Anaconda. He's great in... Um, he's good in Anaconda. <laughs> he's the that? only guy in Anaconda that's sort of acknowledging what the hell's going on in this movie, right? <laughs> he's so ch scenery chewing. Everyone else is like trying to play it kind of straight, but John John right. Voight I'm comes on in Anaconda. Stepping stone. <laughs> yeah, he's not using the movie as any kind of ticket to another movie. No, he's using it as a ticket to his new hot tub that he's going to build in the backyard. <laughs> Doesn't he do like um, a South American accent in that? Isn't he supposed to, isn't he, doesn't he have like a. Yeah. And he's always talking <laughs> in an affectionate way about the anaconda. Like they're all little babies. They're babies. They're my babies. Babies. All of them babies. Well, how do we get them off the boat? Come on, babies. Come on, thank you, Mama. Come on. Some of these are babies. Hey, oh, help him get it off. Someone get this bloody thing off my freaking hand. Get it off. So young. I guess so lethal. Let us, sweetie. You knew there were snakes here, didn't you, Soro? Was a pleasant surprise. What about the fuel? There's only one drum left. That's enough for about 100 kilometers. About a day's ride. Well, that will have to do. Go, go. Back to your mother. Yeah, and he's got like a weird, tight, insane ponytail. And uh, yeah, no, he runs circles around everybody else. It, it's funny that his, so the, the movie role that launched him, obviously, you know, is Midnight Cowboy, where he's, where his, his naifness is the whole thing. Like, that's the reason he's cast in that role is he's got that baby face and he's so good at the, the sort of under, you know, unexploited rube character. But then he really kind of like goes on to do some 
really impressive stuff through the 70s. Like you mentioned Deliverance too, which is, yeah, okay, Burt Reynolds, I get it. But that's as much a John Voight movie as it is a Burt Reynolds movie. Totally, totally. And they're all, you know, they would all go on to amazing things. Um, but um, yeah, it's incredible. It's kind of the first, you know, in one of my favorite genres, the kind of yuppie comeuppance movie. Yes. You know, that like <laughs> Breakdown, Unlawful right. Entry, Lakeview yeah. Terrace. Um, mm -hmm. I just saw one called The Lie, uh, you know, where where unsuspecting middle-class people have their lives invaded yes. by evil forces. Even Cape Fear is kind of in that sure. genre. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, he's fantastic in that. Completely naive. They just have no idea what's going on. Burt Reynolds sort of is spoiling to shoot yeah. uh, Hillbilly in the neck <laughs> with an arrow. First, like on the highway on the way down. But It's, um, it's the ultimate prey, Ted. <laughs> um but yeah no he and he blends perfectly with ronnie cox and ned Beatty. um oh my god what that what a movie i mean that is that's i showed that to my kids when they were way too young <laughs> and i i just stood in front of the screen and made noise during the sexual assault scene <laughs> figuring after that it was just an adventure movie like the river wild but they were still traumatized by, you know, the sort of chicken meat coming out of Burt Reynolds' leg when he gets a compound fracture. Oh, yeah. Have you had success uh, introducing your, what, now 20-something? 30. Oh, my God. That, that's an impossible. They were like young children when we were working together. Yeah, you together. totally saw them when they'd come around your company. So did you have success introducing them to the movies that were important to you or were they Absolutely. typically, they were? Absolutely. They loved classic movies. They loved black and white movies. They love old adventure movies. Um, so yes, I succeeded in getting them to love old classic movies. They love To Kill a Mockingbird. They love, and they love, you know, like me, kind of uh, sort of trashy movies that are fun. Yeah. Now, will you, when you're home now, will, is this part of your routine in the week? Will you watch something every night? Do you scroll through and like look for a, a type of genre? Do you go down rabbit holes? What's your filmic? I go down rabbit holes. I'm watching something always. Sometimes I watch, you know, like I'm sure like anybody, you know, if I find oh, there's Hoosiers or something. I'll just watch that from whatever point it's at. Of course. Um, but um, I watch while I write. I usually have that on in the background. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's like, for me, the equivalent of like leafing through Instagram mm -hmm. while I'm trying to do something else. I have something on for company in the background and uh, just type away. So I'm kind of always watching stuff, but definitely rabbit holes. Sometimes I'll search for something, mm -hmm. you know, if I, if I'm in somebody's mentioned Shane or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, I'll watch this, a, a, a great old Western or something like that. Um, but, um, and sometimes I look at things I haven't seen obscure noir movies, just like, Oh my God, I've never heard of that. There's so many Stanwyck, kind of like, there's so many to, to, to dip into. I just got, I, I had never seen this movie until last night and the rabbit hole started two or three movies ago because I watched, uh, I finally got on Blu-ray from Europe, the seven ups with Roy Scheider, which you can't watch or stream in America. It's just not available. And, you know, seventies cop flick. That's what I'm all about. And kind of a pseudo intentional, you know, 
ripoff of French Connection, really. Same same producer right. directed the movie, but Scheider is amazing in it. And that led me to a couple other Scheider roles that I hadn't seen before. Uh, one was a Jacques Duray film, which is right up my alley, French noir. I love, and I went through that rabbit hole also in the pandemic, but his, this film, uh, the assassin that's set in LA. I don't know if you've seen that Scheider film. It's, it's brilliant. Wow. No, I haven't. Yeah. I love him in, in, um, marathon man. Oh, amazing. Um, and then last night I watched sorcerer, which I'd never seen a freaking movie. And Oh my God, this movie is incredible. Ted, like unbelievable film that I cannot believe I never saw before. It's just, one of the best American films of the seventies. If you haven't seen it. Oh my God, I'll check it out. You know, you, you probably know the, I think it's a, there's a 1953, it's based on a French novel. And I think there's a famous 1953 version of it. That's probably something you might have seen. Um, but Friedkin, you know, is a guy who obviously made a lot of bad movies after making probably four or five of the best American movies ever made. In, in kind of wildly different genres too. And um, the setup of this movie is such a, a pulp noir setup or or hang out in a South American town picked on a suicide mission to drive trucks loaded with decaying dynamite to cap an oil well fire for a corrupt petro company. And <laughs> out of this, though, Friedkin takes it so seriously and sets up the crimes that led these guys to be hiding out. And you have just a great international cast. And it's it's I don't know how this movie kind of is not regarded as one of the as one of the best, you know, of its time. Um, it's The Wages of Fear is the 1953 movie. I'll check them both out. I'll but, check them both out but, tonight. Watch Sorcerer. It'll blow your mind. It's kind of like Fitzcarraldo with monster trucks. Who else is in it? Um, so it's Scheider. And then it's got this really, like, really great international cast. Um, you probably know the guy who plays the Frenchman because he was Inspector Magray. In the, uh -huh. Let me just look up the the names for you here. Cause you probably know this guy better than I do. Um, so Bruner, Bruno, Bruno Kramer. Bruno Kramer. <laughs> Bruno Kramer. Uh, he rose to prominence playing in Shakespeare's Pericles, but I guess he was best known as playing Com Commissaire Jules Magray. How do you say that? Magret, Magray? Magray. Uh, he, he appeared in 50 TV movies as that sort of beloved detective. That's how I think he's best known, but he sort of plays the other main guy. Um, and it doesn't have stars other than, than Scheider and Scheider's just very much one of a company, but it's, it's a crazy, crazy good movie. And I've been trying to think like, is it like, why why do I love seventies movies almost more than anything? It sounds like you have an affinity for a lot of different eras and you like probably the black and white eras too. Is that, do you think? Absolutely. But I love seventies movies. I love, um, you know, French connection. Um, I love all those guys when they were starting out. Yes. Um, 
Laughing Policeman I also just recently got and was able to watch with Matthau and Bruce Dern, a great Bruce Dern role that I'm, I'm excited to see too. I watched that. Also, the world looks so different then. It does. New York is a New York I remember from my youth in yeah. 70s movies and likewise LA. Yeah. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, a familiar sort of warm mm-hmm. backdrop. Like, yeah. it hasn't been, had to be recreated. I almost don't watch anything new unless it's by someone I'm really interested in. Like if I'm going to surf around at night, I want to go, like you said, I want to go down some rabbit hole and it's probably going to take place in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Um, Which is me. And then there's some that just, you know, there's some seventies movies that, you know, are a strange, you know, the conversation is hard for me to rewatch the kind of, Mm. you know, it's just like, why? Because it's kind of too lugubrious, painfully slow, and um, yeah, just sort of repetitive and kind of neurotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hackman's great in it. How about Night Moves? Night Have you seen Moves. That? Yes, that's a great one. That's a great. I might. I'm due for a rewatch on Night Moves. But if I get into Hackman, I, that's that's a rabbit hole I'll go down. Like right now, I'm in my Shiter rabbit hole, and that's going to take me. I have a few more films to get through. Right, right. Maybe stop before his dance movies. What do you mean? Well, you're not going to diss all that jazz, I hope. <laughs> no, not at all. I'll probably go up to Blue Thunder and then I'll pull the plug until his great role in The Rainmaker. He has a great cameo in The Rainmaker in 97, which is one of my favorite movies that I'll always defend. After that, it's pretty spotty. His role as the CEO of Great Benefit? Yes. Good call, Ted. With his roll neck sweater on the stand. And of course, who else is in it as the uh, chief litigator for the corporate uh, firm that represents them, who tells Matt Damon, you're in the deep water now, son. (laughs) Mr. Drummond, you've objected to the fast tracking of this case. What's the problem? Well, Your Honor, uh, this issue's already been ruled upon by Judge Hale. the preparations required, fast tracking the case, place an undue burden on the, on both parties, I believe. Nonsense. Let me ask you something, Mr. Drummond. As a defense lawyer, have you ever agreed to the fast tracking of a lawsuit? Well, Your Honor, I believe I have. <laughs> Fine. Give me the name of the case and the court it was in. <laughs> well, Your Honor, I have to get back to you on that. <laughs> well, call me this afternoon by three. I don't believe I'm going to be in before three. Uh, well, call me when you get in. I'm very anxious to hear about this case you agreed to fast track. Yes, sir. This boy's about to die, gentlemen. You do agree that we need to record his testimony? Yes, indeed. Of course, Your Honor. Just my trial calendar is pushing me around pretty good. How about next Thursday afternoon? Great for me, Your Honor. I'm sorry, Your Honor. That's a week from today. I believe I'm out of town. Yes, I am out of town Thursday. Uh, The deposition is set for next Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. Sorry if it inconveniences the defense. But God knows there's enough of you guys to handle it. John Voigt doing another excellent accent, <laughs> foreshadowing his uh, 
his current sort of corporatist Republican bent, I guess. And you know who else is in that? Teresa Wright from The Best Years of Our Lives. Is she in the, that? Oh wait, yeah. is she the mom? Is she the mom? No. Um, oh wait, she's the is she the nurse? She's the little old lady who's his landlady. Oh, so he right. saves from right. sort of grasping yes. relatives. That's right. I forgot. That, that, that. I forgot that subplot of the uh, the son. Of, it's her son and his wife, or something, or her daughter. Yeah, and her, her son yeah. and his wife that are trying to steal her money. God, I love that. That movie was one of the first. Uh, that was also such an excellent use of Mickey Rourke in a tiny cameo that he killed so well as the as the sleazy lawyer uh, Bruiser. He just has a couple scenes, and it's just something only Mickey Rourke could deliver that quality in. It's amazing. I can't think of anything more embarrassing no. than telling people I work for a guy like Bruiser Stone. Maybe. I mean, he's a lawyer, no. and they call him Bruiser. That's how desperate I am. Uh, sure. Shut the door. Uh, no, not that. Not that either. Sure. Sure. Let's make it, uh, let's make it my house. I really pity the poor FBI technician that's going to have to extract the data from that conversation. Yeah, it's very similar to the sleazy lawyer role played by John Candy in JFK, a New Orleans <laughs> sort of flashy lawyer who wears oh like a God. white jacket and a dark exactly. shirt. Exactly. You know, I, um, I recently read Oliver Stone's book, which I didn't think I was going to be interested in because, you know, I, I think of Oliver Stone as sort of a guy who's kind of maybe lost his marbles a little bit along the way, but the book is incredible mostly because it's his best writing and some of the best writing about the Vietnam war from the perspective of a soldier who's, who's experiencing it. And that whole first section of his book is, is really brilliant about, about Vietnam. But that, that sent me down a little bit of a, of a stone rabbit hole up until, up until wall street, because he's really talking at length about Salvador and all these other kind of movies of his that I love from that era, uh, even a cheesy movie like The Hand that I love to watch with Michael Caine. Or didn't um, he write Midnight Express too? He wrote Midnight Express, yeah, which doesn't hold up, I have to say. That doesn't hold up. I don't know. I mean, that was such a thing. But when you watch it now, it's so overwrought and cheesy to me. It doesn't have that kind of essential 70s leanness and sparseness in a way it's just kind of operatic it's kind of operatic 70s so it doesn't really fill my doesn't fill my maw with what i want as something like the seven ups or the laughing policeman or french connection you know where it's just so dry devoid i think it needs to be contextualized in a festival of foreign prison movies (laughs) so it's like yeah now you have five or six or ten of them where third world incarceration yeah it's got to be put in context to to succeed you're right but uh but those early stone movies are great salvador with 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 jim belushi james woods and james woods you know uh who's probably pals with john voight now in hollywood i would imagine (laughs) (laughs) all right well ted it's three i've got to go unfortunately i could talk to you about old movies forever but let's do it again soon since the pandemic's not going anywhere Thanks. Good talking to you. All right, buddy. Good to see you. Be well. Bye.